Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from Latrobe University. Today we are talking about the legal and political dimensions of blasphemy in Indonesia. This issue gained global attention in 2016 and 2017 when former Jakarta governor Basuki Cahaya Purnama, better known as Ahok, lost the gubernatorial election in Jakarta after he had been charged with blasphemy. Shortly after that election, in May 2017, he was found guilty and sentenced to two years in jail. Ahok may have been the most prominent Indonesian to be imprisoned for blasphemy, but many others have been confronted with similar charges. Most recently, the third daughter of former President Sukarno, Sukmawati Sukarno Putri, was accused of blasphemy, but in contrast to Ahok, she seems to have escaped formal charges. So why is blasphemy such a serious offense in Indonesia? What do the blasphemy cases of Ahok and Sukmawati have in common, and where do they differ? And how do these cases fit into broader legal developments and political trends in Indonesia? In today's podcast, I will discuss these and other questions with Dr. Melissa Crouch, currently a Kathleen Fitzpatrick Visiting Fellow at the Melbourne Law School and a Senior Lecturer from the Law Faculty of the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Melissa, welcome to the program. Thanks. Okay, why don't we start with a sort of brief basic explanation of blasphemy in the Indonesian context. Obviously, the so-called blasphemy law that was often referred to in the Ahok case um, received a lot of attention when Ahok was on trial. But can we first of all maybe take a step back and explain what kind of statements or actions could be considered blasphemous in Indonesia? Hmm. So at its core, blasphemy is some sort of intentional uh, and public expression of hatred, uh, an insult or misuse of a religion. Now, a religion is defined relatively broadly, so it includes the six recognized religions in Indonesia, so Islam, Protestantism, Catholicism, Buddhism, Confucianism, and Hinduism. And often the concern behind this is about protecting a certain orthodox understanding of those six religions. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... That's been regulated in the criminal code, is that right? That's right. So back in 1965, it was actually first introduced by Sukarno as a decree and then later included as law. And the concern at the time was in part trying to encourage people to adopt a certain religious identity. Um, and of course, this was at the height of 1965, an anti-communist sentiment. Mm, interesting that such a provision in the criminal code has been around for so long. Obviously, there have been a lot of changes to the Indonesian regime since then, but it has survived. Is that unusual internationally? Can you give us any examples of other countries that have similar criminal provisions for blasphemy? Sure. There are a number of countries that criminalize blasphemy, others that frame it as sedition or perhaps as hate speech. Certainly in terms of Christianity, there is a long history of the offense of blasphemy, um, but also, of course, in some other uh, Muslim countries around the world, there is this idea of criminalizing any sort of speech or act that is considered to be blasphemous to Islam. But often these uh, blasphemy laws are used to protect the beliefs of a majority religion in particular. Okay. So when Ahok was put on trial for blasphemy, as I said before, that's um, obviously made a lot of international headlines. And we'll talk about that case in a bit more detail shortly. But can you give us an indication of how common such charges are actually 
in Indonesia. He was obviously a very public figure, very prominent, but I understand that many others have been charged with that as well. Yet, in comparison perhaps with other crimes, how common is it to be charged with blasphemy in Indonesia? Yeah, you're certainly right that the Ahok case was, you know, very unusual, prominent and high profile. Um, But certainly there have been quite a number of blasphemy cases in Indonesia. Now, to put it in perspective, since the law was introduced in 1965, for the first few decades, there appear to be very few cases. Um, Now, it's hard to kind of get a sense comprehensively, but from my own research that was perhaps less than a handful, uh, up to 10, prior to 1998 and then transition to democracy. But certainly since 1998, and many would probably say particularly since 2005, there seems to be an increase in the use of the blasphemy law and an increase in reports to the police of allegations of blasphemy. So from the the figures that I have, and I know there are other NGOs in Indonesia who've also done some uh, research on the figures, there have been at least 50 or 60 60 cases in court, and in those cases, about 140 or 50 individuals were convicted for blasphemy. Most of these cases have been on the island of Java, particularly um, in West Java, which is where I did a lot of my PhD research, although there have been a few cases here and there in some of the outer islands. And do you have any information about sort of under what kind of circumstances blasphemy allegations have been made in the past, or does it target specific groups? be that specific religious groups, or maybe is there any gender pattern discernible if you look at the people who have been charged there or socioeconomic backgrounds, any clear patterns? Uh, In terms of patterns and the religious identity of the accused, if we take their self-confessed religious identity, so what they say their religion is, about half of them who have been convicted are Christian and about the other half uh, identify as Muslim. So in that sense, it's not necessarily minorities or non-Muslims who are being convicted for blasphemy, but also many people who do themselves identify as Muslim. While most of the cases have been about blaspheming the religion of Islam, there are some cases where people have been accused of blaspheming Christianity and I think one case at least of blaspheming Hinduism or Buddhism. So in that sense, it has actually been used across a number of religions. In terms of the offences, certainly one of the offences that tops the list is making jokes about certain verses of the Quran, or in particular religious leaders who in some way promote teachings of Islam that perhaps contradicts the five pillars of the faith. So there's you know, there's this idea in Islam that there's sort of five fundamental pillars, but sometimes there are leaders who might say, well, you don't really need to pray five times a day. Three is enough. And that to some more orthodox religious leaders has been taken to be blasphemous. There are other perhaps more offensive conduct that has been categorized as blasphemy. So stepping on the Quran, whistling during prayers, writing your own alternative fatwa. So there have been a range of acts and statements that have been classified as blasphemy. Okay, so these last ones that you just mentioned, they would then explain why several people who identify as Muslims have been charged. So they are Muslims, but they've done something that is considered as deviant from the main orthodoxy. That's right, yeah. And I think there has been an increase in these cases, or at least Certainly, you know, Islam in Indonesia is a very diverse group. There are many, you know, different organizations and institutions, and very often they come into conflict. And so one of the arenas in which we see that conflict taking place is in the courts through the use of the blasphemy law. Mm.
And you said whistling during prayer time is an offense? That's right. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. All right. Let's maybe turn now to that yeah, most infamous of recent blasphemy cases to sort of illustrate some of the dynamics that can occur if you are charged with blasphemy. The allegations against Ahok, the former governor of Jakarta, that obviously yeah, was in the news all over the world. It was seen as a, you know, as a case that was um, indicative of growing religious polarization in Indonesia. But it's been nearly a year now since he was sentenced to two years in jail for allegedly insulting the Quran. So maybe can you briefly refresh our memory? What did he exactly say? that was interpreted by many Muslims as blasphemous. Yeah, so at the time, um, Ahok was visiting the Thousand Islands, which is just off Jakarta, and he was giving a public speech to a relatively small crowd, about 100 people. Now, at the time, I think he sort of said the crowd wasn't particularly listening to him, so he was trying to get their attention. And one of the things he said was, well, you know, you don't have to vote for me, and you probably won't if you've been misled by verse 51 of the Quran. Now, this verse of the Quran essentially warns Muslims about having uh, Christians or Jews as uh, their friend or leader. Now, there are different interpretations of this, and it's a somewhat contested verse, but it has been used by some leaders to infer or imply that Muslims uh, should not vote for non-Muslims, um, or in the positive that Muslims you know, should vote in elections for Muslim candidates. Now, this speech was captured on a video. The video was later tampered with um, by someone and then put up on YouTube. And we know that because the person who uh, uploaded the video was later convicted for a criminal offence under the Electronic Transactions Act. But it was essentially the video clip of him uh, giving that speech and speaking in particular about that verse of the Quran that was deemed to be insulting to Islam. And Ahok, just to uh, reiterate that again, was, of course, Christian, but also ethnic Chinese. So him speaking about the Quran in that matter, I think, contributed to the outrage as well. And the outrage was huge. There were massive demonstrations in Jakarta, and it was effectively in response to those demonstrations that he was put on trial, right? So if we recall those hundreds of thousands of people in the street, in that kind of highly charged political environment, in which the trial eventually took place. He was sentenced to two years in prison, but what other options did the judges in that court actually have, given the political environment? I believe the prosecution laid out other options, didn't it? Mm. Yeah, that's right. So first of all, I think it is important to keep in mind that broader social and political context, as you say. So in some sense, this court trial was you know, highly publicised. I mean, it was not only at the front and centre of national attention. It was not only a key focus of more radical Islamic groups who had been the ones organising the demonstrations and participating in the demonstrations, you know, demanding that he be put on trial. Um, but of course, as you say, it was also attracted the international attention. And so I think for the judges, you know, that context did influence the way they decided this trial. But you're right, so the prosecutors initially put forward a different section of the penal code, so section 156, which is perhaps a slightly lesser offence of pro prohibiting 
the expression of hatred or contempt of, for a group, but it attracts a somewhat lower sentence. And the prosecutors in the case suggested, in fact, a suspended sentence of two years. If the judges had followed that, Ahok wouldn't actually be in jail. Instead, the judges decided to convict him for the slightly higher offence, Section 156A, which is essentially known as the blasphemy um, law. The blasphemy law attracts up to a five-year jail sentence, um, although the judges in this case handed down a two-year sentence for Ahok. Aside from the political dimension, what does the fact that the judges actually did ignore the prosecution's um, statements, what does it tell us about the judges and the judiciary more broadly in blasphemy cases. Yeah, look, um, it it was certainly a highly politicised trial. And I think in many ways, the trial had become something of a circus. You know, proceedings were streamed live on national television. And so, you know, all of that, I think, did have an influence on the judges. I think it's also important to note that in the transition era in Indonesia since 1998, judges have been quite protective of their independence. Now, on one hand, we could see this as a good thing. So, you know, there's been a clear shift to... um, enhancing the independence of the courts as an institution. But in some sense, it's kind of swung the other way and bordered on a a lack of accountability at times. The ways in which this um, manifests is that sometimes, for example, parliament might pass a law, they might, you know, create a certain criminal offence and then require a judge to um, issue a mandatory minimum sentence if that person is found guilty. But in other crimes, such as people smuggling, for example, judges have completely ignored that legislative minimum sentence of five years. And they've decided that they are the best to judge what is necessary and appropriate for that particular accused person. And so they haven't necessarily allowed themselves to be bound by anything that the parliament or the prosecution might say to them. And so I think in this case, you know, the judiciary, they heard testimony from a range of religious leaders, including from some very hardline Islamic groups. Um, And I think they were aware more broadly of the kind of popular sentiment that had been stirred up by this case. And so they convicted him for blasphemy. Yeah, that's been about a year ago now. So given the sentence was two years, so Ahok has now been in jail for about half of the time that he's supposed to be there. And I guess, to some extent, the issue was gradually fading away from public discourse. Ahok has been in the news again for his um, personal life, but that's a different matter. Um, But the the broader issue of blasphemy sort of disappeared slightly. Until then, at the end of last month, another case sort of hit the news because, once again, it was a relatively prominent figure. I mean, Ahok was obviously the most prominent person to have ever been charged with blasphemy. But now another figure of national um, prominence, the one of the sisters of former President Megawati Sukarno-Putri, was not charged. But as far as I know, complaints were lodged with the police about something that she said in a poem, That's which right. she recited at a fashion show, I think. Mm-hmm. So the whole circumstances seemed a bit odd, and yet it was all over the news uh, for a few days. But up until now, there has been no push 
towards actually charging her. So can you give us a bit of context of this case, why this poem actually invited this kind of um, criticism from some groups? Yeah, so I think this is a, a good case that does really illustrate um, how these prosecutions work. So in some of my other research, what I found is that actually fatwa from an Islamic organization, but particularly often from the Indonesian Ulama Council, are often quite instrumental in resulting in a conviction for blasphemy in a particular case. Now, the reason why this relates to our Sukmawati situation is that the Indonesian Ulama Council actually decided that they weren't going to issue uh, a decision and that they didn't want to pursue this case. So let me just come back to them, what she said and, and why did it get to that point. So you're right, it was um, a poem that she delivered at Indonesian Fashion Week, the poem entitled Mother Indonesia, had some references in it, or perhaps it's easier if I just read it out. Uh, so the poem goes, I don't know Islamic Sharia. What I do know is that the Sari Konde, which is a wig in the shape of a traditional Javanese woman's hairstyle, of Mother Indonesia is beautiful, more beautiful than your niqab, so the uh, Islamic headscarf. I don't know Islamic Sharia. What I do know is that the sound of Mother Indonesia's ballad is beautiful, uh, more dulcet than your azan, uh, the call to prayer. So um, you have some references here both to the headscarf and also to the call to prayer at the mosque. And as a result, there were complaints made to the police, I believe, by a number of different organisations, including the Islamic Defenders Front, as well as a leader from the East Java branch of Naratul Ulama. Now, I believe there are allegations both of blasphemy, um, but also of hate speech under um, the eradication of racial and ethnic discrimination law. Now, I think what was critical in this case is that uh, two or three days after the allegations were made, she did apologise to a number of the complainants specifically, but sort of to the Muslim community more broadly. And that appears to have been accepted to some extent. And as I said, uh, the Indonesian Ulama Council in particular came out and said that they weren't going to pursue this case further. And so perhaps for her, that may be the end of it. But certainly for others, and including for Ahok, the Indonesian Ulama Council did issue what became known as a fatwa in that case. And a fatwa is very often part of the evidence that the court uses to to find a person guilty of blasphemy. I can just ask about the fact that uh, Sukmawati issued an apology. How important is that in comparison with other cases? Has an apology helped those who have been charged to escape um, imprisonment? In some cases, the person who is accused of blasphemy decided to apologize. And I think in some cases that has been well received. In other cases, the person who is accused of blasphemy has refused to apologize and has said, well, I've, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not going to apologize. And usually they end up in jail. But certainly there have been, um, and I can think of one particular case in Malang where a large number of Christians were accused of blaspheming Islam. Although they were convicted, there was still uh, quite a public process of apologizing. Uh, and in particular, other Christian leaders, in some sense, apologizing on their behalf. And I think one of the reasons that they were doing that in this case is because the case itself and the possible impact or flow and effect that it might have could have been very destabilizing. It could have led to, you know, quite large scale conflict. You know, people could have gotten quite upset about it. And so in some sense this public 
um, display of apology and attempt to show respect and deference for other religions, I think was an important part of ensuring that the case didn't go any further and that there wasn't any major conflict as a result of that case. Mm, okay. Yeah, so you're alluding to conflict, so maybe we can move on a bit to the sort of the broader political but also legal implications of blasphemy and the way it is being handled um, in the Indonesian system. There's certainly a concern that this may again play up in the upcoming regional elections. Um, there's a whole range of, I think, just over 100 regional elections coming up in the middle of the year. Have there been indications that any other political leaders may be targeted by a hardline group, leaders that are trying to run in these elections? Yeah, absolutely. So um, actually earlier this year in Jambi, uh, which in Sumatra, there was a political who's the chair of NASDEM, which is a political party. He was just convicted for a year under the electronic transactions law, which has an offence that in some sense is similar to blasphemy. What he did was he posted on Facebook his opinion about people who had been you know, pursuing Ahok and he essentially described people who were supporting the conviction of Ahok as as bad as the devil. And so he was convicted for one year under the Electronic Transactions and Information Act. But in not- some sense for his, but not for blasphemy. Yeah, but in some sense it's used in a similar way to the blasphemy provision. Mm, okay. That's interesting. I would have expected perhaps that the people then try again to use the blasphemy law in this case as well, but mm-hmm. instead they used a different law. Mm, okay. What's more broadly at stake then in Indonesia is the future perhaps of the reputation of Indonesia as a moderate Muslim state, right? A lot has been written about the implications of the Islamist mobilization around the Ahok case and whether Indonesia still deserves this label as a moderate Muslim state. So how do you see the quite proactive use of blasphemy in political contexts in order to bring candidates down or to weaken their chances of getting elected? How do you see this playing out into the future of Indonesian politics. Is it a reflection of a broader trend that Indonesia is just simply becoming more conservative? Or does it say more about the actual mobilization power of these groups? And what does it say about the importance of blasphemy as a, you know, as an offense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, certainly in my book on law and religion in Indonesia, you know, one of the things that I was most concerned with is, you know, since 1998, we've really seen what I've called the judicialization of religion. So often where there are complaints over religious issues or between different religious groups, that people go to law as another tool and means to try and advance their agenda. I think what we've also seen since 1998 is that you know, democratization clearly gives greater voice to and freedom of expression to everyone, but particularly to more radical groups in the absence of a strong state. And so we often see as if there is any intimidation of the courts um, and other legal institutions, they're often relatively powerless. The other thing I think we've seen is that broader process of decentralization in Indonesia has initially meant that religion has become a significant issue at the local level. You know, we've seen this in a range of ways from the introduction of Islamic regulations at the local level. But I think now since, you know, the Ahok case, it's clearly become much more of a national issue. 
And certainly there are significant concerns going into the election next year that that political parties will misuse religion in some sense or simply use it for their own political agenda. Um, I know, for example, that there have been complaints to uh, the body that supervises the elections, so complaints, for example, that political candidates are misusing religion for political purposes, and so the Indonesian supervision body, Bawaslu, can actually investigate some of these complaints, but obviously it's quite difficult. Mm. Yeah, what I'm finally interested in is beyond the election, what actually may happen to blasphemy and the blasphemy law. Because even though it's it's gained a lot of attraction due to the Ahok case, there have been people in Indonesia who have challenged the very validity of that clause in the criminal code. So there have been, as far as I know, been appeals to the constitutional court. So how do you see the future of blasphemy as a criminal offense? Um, are there efforts to try to actually lessen its significance and its importance and therefore perhaps take a bit of the sting out of it as a political weapon? Yeah, there have certainly been a number of civil society groups that have been working for many years either to try and have the blasphemy law amended in some way to perhaps ensure that it's not misused for political purposes or to have it abolished completely. Now, the the first sort of constitutional challenge to this law was back in 2010. There was then a subsequent case in 2013. And then just this year, the Constitutional Court has finished hearing yet another constitutional challenge to the law. So in some sense, we're actually still just waiting for the Constitutional Court to hand down its decision. Some of the differences compared to the previous cases, are one is that the judges on the bench of the Constitutional Court at the moment, most of them are different to the judges who heard the last two cases. So in some sense, it's a fresh bench, if you like, who are deciding the issue. Um, But nevertheless, they are probably likely to be inclined towards the decision that the Constitutional Court made in the previous two cases, which essentially was to reject a more, more what's seen to be as a, a liberal or Western notion of separation of religion and state. In the past, the Constitutional Court has placed emphasis on the ability of the state to limit religious freedom if it's necessary, essentially to protect the orthodox views of the recognised religious groups. Um, Now, the other slight difference about this case, though, is that in the past, it's either been largely driven by civil society or the 2013 case was brought by some Shiite applicants. This case, it's actually uh, some Ahmadi applicants, so the Ahmadiyya, who have been affected by essentially a different provision in the blasphemy law. So in 2008, you had a decree that specifically targeted the Ahmadiyya didn't go as far as banning them, but it certainly was interpreted as allowing particularly you know, local governments or provincial governments to place certain restrictions on the activities of Ahmadi communities across Indonesia. So in that sense, the issue is slightly new. The Constitutional Court held 15 hearings from August last year until January this year. So in that sense, it was quite an extensive hearing. There are a lot of expert witnesses from both sides as well as from the government that were arguing the case. And so now we just wait to see what the constitutional court will decide. But as I've said, there's probably strong precedent for it to maintain the previous approach that the court has taken, which is essentially to say that the blasphemy law is a necessary restriction on religious freedom. Yeah, and I guess the standing of Shia and Ahmadis in Indonesia is not... 
that it would be. Um, yeah, but I mean, having said that, the 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 reason why perhaps their arguments are slightly stronger compared to the first case. So in the first case, the applicants were largely arguing, you know, based on liberal ideas of separation of of religion and state. This wasn't received well at all by the court. But in the second two cases, they've essentially tried to argue within the traditions of Indonesian Islam and essentially emphasised that Indonesian Islam has been a very broad and inclusive group that has accepted Shiites and Sunnis and you know and other groups within Islam. So in, in that sense, they've tried to make a more localised argument as a way of trying to be more accommodative to their audience and to the kinds of claims that they're used to. Okay. And these cases before the Constitutional Court, they are completely separate from the revision to the Criminal Code, right? That's right. Yes. So when the Criminal Code was revised, the blasphemy law was not touched. So Articles 156 and 156A are unchanged. That's right. All right. Thanks very much, Melissa. That was Melissa Crouch, visiting fellow at the Melbourne Law School, speaking with Dirk Thompson on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Please join us again on the 10th of May for the next episode of this podcast. You can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening and till next time.